Hi, everyone, and welcome to a firms consulting podcast. This is going to be one of the most interesting podcasts I've put together because it's um, it answers a question that a lot of um, clients and readers and subscribers have asked me to talk about, and that is how do I go about reading news articles? So, you know, when I open the Bloomberg, for example, .com, and I read an article about um, the water supply problems in California, what's going on in the back of my mind as I process this article? And how do I extract the kind of insights I do and, uh, you know, succinctly build arguments out of them and so on. So this is an interesting uh, podcast. And I thought a few ways of how I could present this, but I thought the most valuable lesson I could give listeners is to understand how to critically assess the content and the um, message the writer is trying to propagate in that article. So, the way I'm going to do this podcast, I'm going to first talk to you about how news works, because I don't think people uh, necessarily think about that. I'm then going to talk about how news organizations work, and then I'm going to use uh, an article at the end to explain to you how I would analyze it, an article about McKinsey so um, that came, recently came out in the New York Times about how I would analyze that article. And when I talk about how news works and how news organizations work, I'm not going to get involved in the history of news organizations and so on. I mean, how they work relative to uh, the way they manipulate the message that goes out into the market. And manipulate, I'm not, I don't mean that in, in, a, in a bad sense. Every time something is published, it's published for a reason. And you have to understand the reason why it's published. So let's start off by, by explaining how news works, right? So... I think there's a very big misunderstanding amongst 99% of the population about the way news works. When you're thinking about, let's just say you open, you open the New York Times, which is a pretty good newspaper, right? And they have an article, if you're in the New York Times today, there's an article there about a politician in the United States who is plagued with some scandal. Well, of course, that would be every day in the United States, but you get my point, right? So... Let me explain how news works. When you look at an article that appears in any newspaper publication, basically any publication anywhere in the world, you've got to think about, okay, there's the news, there's the facts, and there's opinion. Now, three groups. In your head, you're probably thinking, why does Michael say news and facts are different? Aren't they the same thing? Actually, they're not. And it's not that anyone's trying to manipulate you. It's just that people don't understand how the media works. So let me explain how it works. Let's assume that, um, I don't know, a presidential candidate is running for nomination and this lady comes up from somewhere and says, oh, he fathered my child, right? Now, let me explain to you the difference between a fact and a news here. Fact and the news. The fact is, uh, a fact that the newspapers would report is, that Lady X reported that this presidential candidate fathered my child. Now, that is the fact being reported. What many of us confuse here is that they assume that the fact is the information that the fathering of the child is true. There's a big difference here, right? What the newspapers publish 
is what is being said. Their job is not to fact check what is being said. Eventually they do it, but they have to publish what is being said. So, so let me give an example of this. Now, another example to show you how it can be manipulated. If someone senior enough said something that's completely wrong, because they are senior, because they're a person of interest and a person of stature in the community or global news community, the newspapers would have to publish it. And the newspaper would publish it by saying, um, I don't know, person X said this person's a total idiot. That is the fact that they would publish. Now, even though it may be totally wrong, it, the newspapers have to publish it because it's a newsmaking item. The only time the newspaper would um, counter that news story is if another person went out there and said, hey, what this person's saying is not true, and then you get a counter argument, right? Now, when you are reading the news, any news, you must understand that, the newspapers will publish what is a newsworthy piece of information. They're not fact-checking it when it comes out. In fact, if they do fact-check it, the only way they can do it is through an investigative piece which takes months to occur and comes out well after the original piece arrived or someone counters that claim. Now, you know, if you want to be, if you want to be a, a very, very clever media strategist, PR strategist, you just run these major pieces that are completely bogus, but because they're coming out from a major news source, or from a major personality anyway, they dominate the headlines. And by the and remember what happens, right? If something like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal picks up a piece and runs with it, everyone writes some derivation of that without checking it because it came from the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. And then that piece of information, which hasn't been fact-checked, becomes fact across the, the internet. And it, it doesn't matter if it's wrong, but the time someone steps in and, and presents an alternative view of this, news becomes fact. But news is not fact in the way you in the way we think about it as consultants. Some of this I was gonna step back and, and explain this concept again. Something reported is a fact only in the sense that it was said. It's not a fact in the sense that it is true. So always remember that, right? You need to understand that. So newspapers publish news. Sometimes they publish facts embedded in there, but a different kind of facts. And then they also publish opinion pieces. Now, opinion pieces um, are different. We'll talk about that later. So, so that's how news works. And you have to understand that when you're reading newspaper articles, right? Now, let's just talk about how news organizations fit into this. And then we'll talk about, you know, some of the things you need to consider when you read an article. Every news organization has a point they're trying to put across. I mean, that's a fact, right? A news organization is owned by someone. It is owned by someone who obviously has a heart, has some emotion, and supports certain causes. I have not seen in my entire time a news organization that would deliberately discredit or attack the fundamental beliefs of its owners. In fact, that's why you own a news organization, so that you can control the story as it goes out. Or, or in the sense of what most people do, they'll say that we want to present the alternative view that is not being told. But the point is, the alternative view, even if it's not being told, is your view. So, when you're looking at any news organization, I mean, the New York Times, I use them a lot, I read them 
extensively. But the New York Times is a, is a, is a newspaper that has, for, for better or worse, I'm not going to comment on this, has decided it will pursue liberal causes. Well, anyway, the New York Times definitions of liberal causes. So the New York Times is, is invariably going to be publishing a lot of um, articles that support liberal issues. Now, you could ask yourself, but, how, but why would the New York Times do that? I mean, wouldn't they be more um, circumspect? Well, they have no choice, right? You've got the owners who are liberal. They bring in editors who like-minded. The editors then reach out to people who are like-minded. Think about recruiting, right? You don't end up working with someone who you disagree with on fundamental beliefs. You have to agree on fundamental beliefs. So the editor hires writers that share his fundamental belief. And I remember something that Nicholas Christoph in the New York Times said once, you know, New York Times reporters, by definition, are highly educated, um, rarely have done you know, blue-collar work, but they support liberal causes. Now, that's not good or bad. That's just the angle that the New York Times takes. The Wall Street Journal will go in a completely different viewpoint because they have different owners, they are structured differently, and they're pursuing a different ideological belief, right? Now, now that I've talking about, spoken about news and news organizations, let's just talk about how I'd analyze an article when it comes out. The first thing I do before I even read an article is I can probably get 90% of what that article is going to say without reading it. And that's going to be, be very strange to people. What do you mean you say you get 90% of an article before you even read it? Well, let me explain what this means. Let's assume, again, I'll use the New York Times because I read it a lot, right? Now, let's assume that um, um, a piece comes out in the New York Times. The first thing I would do, right, even before I read that article, is I would say, what is the article about? What time is it being published? How many authors are behind that article? Um, where is it being written from? Who is doing the writing? You know, is it reporting a news or is it reporting on a piece that's already been reported? Um, what you know, for example, I'll, I'll, I'm going to use a real story later to explain how I bring all of this together. But I, I think it's, I'll just go through some of the criteria first, and then I'll show you how it all comes together, right? The other things I'd look at is is to see whether any of the whether there's any editorial note at the bottom. The next thing I'll look at is to see any quotes, any graphs. Now, why do I look at all those things? Let's go through them in a piece by piece. Well, firstly, the time of day is quite important. When you are running major news stories that affect the share price of a company, if you want to kill it, you run it on a Friday. So when I see a big publication coming out on a Friday. I know that the newspaper is trying to kill the story. But if I see something really problematic coming out on a Monday, I know the newspaper wants this to have legs. I'll give you an example of that. The New York Times won a Pulitzer Prize recently for their pieces on the uh, Apple economy, You know um, how Apple is shifting jobs to China, blah, 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 blah. Now, they ran those on a Monday morning. They didn't come out on a Tuesday. They didn't come out on a Wednesday. They ran them on Monday so that they got the whole Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday to build up momentum. Because if you run it on a Friday, it dies on the weekend. And whatever comes out on the weekend buries it, right? Now, that's the first thing I look at. The second thing I tend to look at is how many reporters are working on the piece. The more important the piece is, I would want more than one reporter to work on it because... You know, people always like to think that everyone's good, but this is a competitive industry. Journalism pays, what, nothing? And everyone's trying to write that one breakout story that's going to change things for them. And people will be biased. 
they may not be overtly manipulative, but they'll be biased to present a piece that is just a little bit more sensationalist. It's a little bit too good. So when I see multiple authors working on something, I know the probability of everyone colluding to put out a piece of trash is much lower. So I generally prefer you know, important pieces that are written by multi multiple people. And so, you know, at least I, I understand that the probability of one person massaging the facts in their direction is is low. The other thing I look for is is the wording. This is really important. You would have noticed if you pay attention that in the last few weeks the New York Times has started doing direct quotes. Now what I mean by direct quotes is that previously when the New York Times quoted someone, they would edit the quote for grammar and typos and so on. I mean, they would do it. You'd notice if you go back a few months, every quote in the New York Times was perfect. And, you'd, and, I, and I remember thinking, I said, wow, all these people speak so well. But they, obviously they don't because the New York Times is editing it. But the New York Times has come under fire for that. And I'm using them again as an example. I'm sure Wall Street Journal is coming under fire, The Guardian in the UK and so on, right? It is super important to quote things as presented by the person saying it. So when I read a quote, I always think to myself, is this what the person said? Especially if I see something where it's just part of the sentence being shown. I don't generally like that because I'd like to see what was said in the early part of the sentence at the end of the sentence because it adds context, right? I would also like to see the errors presented. Let me give an example of this, right? Um, there's a, currently a scandal in the newspapers about a certain politician who closed a bridge in the United States. I, mean, I don't know if he did this or what's going on here, but it's interesting to see how that news story evolved. Initially, the newspapers published that the person making the accusation against the politician was in possession of evidence that he had done this. That was not what was said, but that is the way the newspapers published the quote. Over time, the real quote came out, which is, the person says evidence existed. Now, there's a very big difference between saying you're in possession of evidence to say that you're aware of evidence but you don't have it. Now, this is an example of how you've got to be very, very careful of not reading too much into an article unless it's a direct quote. And even if it's a direct quote, always remember people are going to say which may, some things that makes them look good, right? So this is a couple of other things. The other reason things I look for is is editorial comments at the bottom. If something's if something has an editorial comment at the bottom. It tells me a couple of things. It tells me, firstly, this article is very important. It's so hot that even though it's being published a few hours ago or a few days ago, that the editorial team, even though they are immensely busy, are going back and reviewing the facts. So when I see an editorial note at the bottom, I know the facts are being reviewed. I would like newspapers, however, to do what some blogs do by highlighting or striking out the sentences they've changed and rewording them so I can see what had happened. It may look a bit ugly, so I can understand why they don't do that. But at least I know that when the editor's corrections are appearing at the bottom, this article is being checked. Now, I mentioned before I like it when there's quotes and even video files and even uh, audio files embedded into an article. The reason I like that is because to put that together takes time. And the danger when you're putting out an article very quickly or a newspaper piece is that Publications don't fact-check them as much as they could, but by putting in multimedia, they are forced to delay to get the multimedia and gives them more time to fact-check the articles, right? Now, there are many, many, many other ways 
that I can cut in and read an article, but I'm going to give you a very classic example of how I would do this using a real piece. Uh, the New York Times, again, I, I'm not picking on them, I think they're a pretty good publication, um, published a piece with Dominic Barton and McKinsey where he spoke about how McKinsey is embarking on this enormous um, exercise to ensure there is no further ethics and ethical scandals within the business after you know, Rajat Gupta and all those issues they had. And everyone was so pleased to say, wow, McKinsey is doing all of this. And I had a completely different take on this. Firstly, uh, let's just forget about the contents of the article, right? Let's just look at the positioning of the article. Remember I said, there's a lot you can read about the article before you even read the article. Firstly, you've got a smiling Dominic Barton in, in the article, I mean, which means that he, it's, a, it's a sanctioned article. That means that McKinsey cooperated on the article. I mean, before you even get into the article, you've got Dominic Barton smiling, which means he brought a photographer in, took time out of his day, snapped a few shots. So it's a sanctioned piece. That means that McKinsey cooperated on the article, which means McKinsey wanted to release information about how the firm is being run into the mainstream media. All right? And given the space amount dedicated to that article, it was quite a lengthy piece, this wasn't a, a short little piece. I mean, the journalist was probably there for quite a long time putting this together. So the question I would ask myself is, why would McKinsey go through all of this trouble to basically commission a piece to go into the media? Why would they do Why would a company go out of its way to tell people that it's introducing an ethical culture or reintroducing an ethical culture. Now, if you ask yourself that question, you, you notice that the direction goes in a very different way. Most people are saying, wow, this is so great, but I'm thinking this is actually so bad. I think so bad that you've got to actually go out there and work with a New York Times reporter to put out a puff piece about this. So that's the first thing I looked at, right? The other thing is I, is I noticed how the article moved across the New York Times page. Um, the New York Times has an algorithm that sits behind the article, which it initially puts articles into not-so-prominent positions, and then as they get clicked, they start moving across the page until they take more and more prominent positions. But uh, this article didn't move like that. It started off somewhere at the midpoint, given a lot of prominence, and then moved its way out there, which I mean, asked me a question. So, you know, why would... Wh why did that convey the editor's to give this article so much prominence versus another article. Well, you could say it's an important piece, but I don't and accept that. But why did they change the algorithmic formula, right? So that's an interesting thing. Now, let's go into the content of the article. The content of the article spoke about how a couple of things McKinsey is doing to prevent an ethical breach. Here's a couple of things. One is it's um, getting its younger associates to... to um, to take some kind of online test to prove they're ethical. Second, um, Barton talks about how the European partners fundamentally disagree with him on the way he's trying to introduce more tougher, in the article's words, American-style tactics to prevent investment in clients. And third, he talks about how, um, you know, um, some of the junior people disagreed with the way McKinsey is being run and left the firm. Now, many people 
would read this and say, wow, I can't believe this is all happening, this is great. Now, I read something else completely, because, remember, an article is published. Remember, you've got to think, ask yourself this. Why is an article being published? Why would someone go to all this? It's obviously a lot of work to put out a piece like this, knowing that it's going to raise questions. So obviously, there's a very important reason that they're doing this. But here's some fundamental questions that no one asked. Why did McKinsey think, or Dominic Barton think, it's okay to go out there and publicly chastise and criticize his European brothers, partners, what made it right to do that? You know, there's a rule you have in a partnership in the sense that you don't air dirty laundry in public. But but here he goes out of his way to talk about how the European partners disagree. So what kind of message is he sending to the European partners? Hey, just because you disagreed with me doesn't mean this is finished. I'm still thinking about this and I'm still going to do it. But he's sending them a message in a very indirect way, right? you got to ask yourself that question. Why didn't he call up the European partners, set up a caucus in private the way McKinsey always does it? Here's the other question. The article talks about the fact that many alumni, senior partners, I know some of those senior partners were in that meeting, they, um, they, they, there was a, a, a discussion with the McKinsey leadership and they were very unhappy about this. So, so why did... Dominic Barton bring this up again, a private meeting. Maybe he wants to let these partners know that, look, I've heard you. I know that what we're doing, you're not happy about it, but I'm going to change it, right? But why does he have to do it in the public domain? Is it not enough to do it in private? So there's obviously, you've got to ask yourself this, what, what is not working within McKinsey that you have to move into a public space? To do? And why is a public spat with the European partners being brought out this way? And the part that I didn't like, well, I didn't like a lot of this, but the part that I also didn't like is the fact that teaching people ethics is a value system. You don't teach someone ethics by making them go online and take a test. That That's actually a failure of your system, right? It, you, you failed if that is what you have to resort to, to make them do an online test to prove they understand ethics. But here is Dominic Barton so proud of this online test. And I think to myself, okay, why would someone be so proud of an online test? Obviously, someone, clients, are not impressed or happy with the current system McKinsey has. So Dominic has to indicate he's introduced something else. But it doesn't appear that he... The article doesn't say anything about the... the improved adherence to ethics as a result of the test, it just seems that the article wants to point out they've introduced this new super-duper ethics online test, which, might I add, audit firms have had for the last, what, 15 years since the arrival of the internet. So, when I read the article, you notice I pick out very different things, you know. Why was the article done? What did McKinsey feel was so important that to communicate in this article that they take the risk of publishing it. Why did McKinsey want to publicly criticize its European partners? Why did McKinsey want to go out of its way to point out, and there's another piece, that they dismiss some of the directors? You know, why are they being so open about this? For a firm that's so private and prided itself on being so private, why is it now going out of its way to be transparent about the way it's dismissing partners? Why is it publicly airing dirty laundry, or their version of dirty laundry? Um, those are the questions you have to ask yourself. And none of these answers are good for McKinsey, might I add. I mean, we can have a separate discussion about what I think is happening to McKinsey, which is not good. But 
why would you tell people you dismiss two partners? Is it because clients and the market doesn't think you're doing enough to handle ethics? If the client and markets are not thinking you're doing enough to do to handle ethics, is this going to fix it? Let me, let me just elaborate on that point. It's like a bank who has a run on it because people think the bank doesn't have enough ca capital to bolster its uh, deposits. So that you know, if there's a rumor that this bank is going to go under because they don't have enough capital, you put out a statement saying, oh, you do have enough capital. To me, this this is a little bit like that, right? Your capital as a as a consulting firm is your cachet and the fact that clients trust you. And now you've got to put out a statement saying, oh, we're cleaning house. Look, everyone, we're cleaning house. We're doing everything to clean house. Which ask yourself, what is really happening behind the scenes that makes them put out this article? And those are the kind of things that no one really reads into this, right? When you read an article about anything, I mean, there's an article recently about how the... Um, governor of California wants to build a new system to transport water because of the drought. People just read this as fact, but you've got to ask yourself, okay, why is he discussing this? Why does he feel the need to put this out there? Who would benefit from this from this deal going through? Why is it being given so much prominence? Why is only quotes from the people supporting it making up nine-tenths of the article, but you know, people not supporting this one-tenth of the article? Now, I can discuss much more here, but what the point I want to make is that it's super important when you read an article, the f the information in the article is like only a tenth of what you're going to get out of it. You've got to be super critical. Always remember this. Unless you're living in North Korea, and I believe there's capitalism in North Korea as well, this is a capitalist society. Every time someone does something, they want something from you. It's that simple. You, you can think that they're noble, but if somebody does something, they want something from you. The thing I find really funny is people write out these things, and then you think they are being noble. They're not being noble. If they don't want something directly from you, they want something indirectly from you. They want you to think a certain viewpoint. I mean, that's the way the media has always been managed. And it's not good or bad, it's because it's a representation of how we think as human beings. So when you view articles, keep that in the back of your head. As always, I'll be more than happy to provide comments or respond to queries.